In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I want to talk this morning about how we learn to hate. We aren't born hating anyone. It's taught to us, taught to us from when we are very young. Like that old song from the musical South Pacific puts it, you've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. I want to talk about how we learn to hate because it seems like every day there are new examples of people hating each other and the consequences are dire. I also want to talk about it because as a parent of kids who are approaching six or seven or eight and are developing a character of their own, I find myself wondering and worrying about how best to help shape that character in positive ways because I know the kinds of messages they're going to get from the world around them and it makes me concerned. And finally, I want to talk about how we learn to hate because perhaps if we can better understand that, we might be better equipped to understand how we learn to love. And it just so happens that this morning we've got an excellent case study in how we learn to hate, in the character of the man who will become St. Paul. Except when we meet him this morning, in our passage from Acts, he is neither Saint nor Paul, he is still Saul. And he is barely an extra in the scene that we just read, the stoning of Stephen. Stephen has aroused the anger of the rival Jewish factions and they label him a blasphemer and the crowd turns into a mob and quickly stones him to death. And in a strange but important moment of detail, the author of Acts tells us that as they are about to get in on the action, quote, the witnesses laid their coats at the foot of a young man named Saul. Saul is a bystander, a witness to this violence, just a youth, really, just the coat check. And yet as he observes what is unfolding before him, it teaches him just what you are allowed to do when you hate somebody. And it stirs something in him, a, a sick satisfaction, a twisted Pleasure and Saul approved of their killing him, it reads. This is such a highly formative moment for him that at the end of his life, in Acts 22, when Saul, now Paul, is himself on trial, after having changed course completely in his life, he still recalls this fateful day and how it was the match that set him ablaze. Because after this moment, Saul goes on a rampage. With the authority of the council behind him, he seeks out followers of the way. They weren't known as Christians yet. 
And he beats and imprisons them. He persecutes and maybe even executes others just like Stephen. He is a one-man wrecking crew until Jesus stops him in his tracks and puts his life into a whole new direction. Saul's example can teach us a lot about how we learn to hate because it's much the same way people have always learned to hate and still do. The first step towards hate is to generalize. Stephen's antagonists were from different factions of Judaism, from different regions of the empire, and they were known and referred to only in those general labels. Likewise, Stephen is known only to them as a member of this new and suspicious group of Jesus' followers. Now, in and of itself, generalizations are not bad. They are essential to our functioning in the world. We group things and people based on shared characteristics and traits in order to keep track and to organize and to understand. And it is true. Groups of people have real and valid differences between them. But the shadow side of this impulse towards generalization is that it serves to dehumanize people. Inevitably, by grouping people together in our minds, they lose their individuality and become more of an idea than a person. And this distances them ever so slightly from you and turns a collective we into an us and a them, right? But where this really turns south is the next step. We then stigmatize those differences. We are taught to attach value to them, turning neutral distinctions into qualitative traits. And we are taught labels and epithets and slurs, which are often entirely fabricated, if we're honest, but are helpful in further stigmatizing the other. Blasphemer is what they call Stephen. Lazy, stupid, weak, thugs, liars. That's what we label other people. And our labels take those differences and turn them into a hierarchy, make them into judgments of worth and ability for whole groups of people, and so us and them turns quickly into us against them. Then, we are taught to normalize this hierarchy. Our language and how we operate reinforces those stigmatizations. It starts to become just the way things are, just the way they are. And this hierarchy is maintained by the normalization of a certain level of not just verbal, but physical violence towards those others, which is observed and absorbed by those who are still learning how to be in this world. Think about the compulsory attendance at the Colosseum in Roman times to watch the criminals and the Christians being thrown to the beasts, or crucified along the road for passers-by to see. 
Think about the scaffold or the stocks set up in the public square in Reformation England where children were shown to the front so that they could witness the action. Did you know that lynchings in the Jim Crow South were social events, almost like carnivals? People would bring picnics, pose for pictures, make postcards to send around to family and friends. Sickening. And yet we too, a hundred years later, have normalized an appalling level of violence in our society as this week alone has proved. And we learn that from a very young age. Young Saul saw it and it stuck with him. And I can assure you our young people are seeing it too. From there, it's not that far to the last step, which is to actualize that hate that has been brewing. It progresses insidiously from our minds into our hearts and into our lives. We give people the mentality and the emotion and then the means, the opportunity and the encouragement around the dinner table, in the news, online. So we shouldn't be surprised at the conflagrations that occur. We give people weapons, sure, but just as dangerously we give to people who are promoting hate, power, and money, and influence, and with it the ability to instigate and inspire acts of violence. When Saul got all fired up after watching the stoning of Stephen, the council was all too happy to give him their endorsement so he could go and persecute the peaceful people who sought to follow Jesus. And he did so with frightening effectiveness. Those are the steps in how we learn to hate. We generalize, we stigmatize, we normalize, and then we actualize. That's what happened for Saul. And that's what continues to happen today. But there is another way. What we might call the way. The way of Jesus. Jesus offers an essential counterpoint to how we learn to hate in how he teaches us to love. And the first step that we learn from him on this way of love is not to generalize, but to personalize. As we heard last week, Jesus is the Good Shepherd who knows us each by name. We are not a people to him, we are a person, and he knows us. So too must we, if we seek to love, must resist that temptation to dehumanizing generalization and seek instead to know persons. Love cannot take root at a distance or in abstraction. It must be based in personal relationship. And if I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus tells us in this morning's Gospel, I will come again and I will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. 
I want to be with you. Jesus is saying, for all eternity. Love blossoms by coming close and being with, in knowing and being known. From this starting point of personal relationship, it becomes very difficult to stigmatize. Time and again, Jesus engages with a person that by the standards of the day, he should have nothing to do with. And by doing so, he destigmatizes them. That's women, Gentiles, tax collectors, leopards, you name it. He is right there with him, getting to know them. And these moments were perhaps the most radical aspect of Jesus' ministry because of the whole weight of culture and history that was being thrown off when they occurred. Such actions were cultural earthquakes. They were attacking the foundation of just the way things are at its root. And he could do that because he wanted to know these people, and because he believed they were worthy, not just of love, but of celebration. For whatever uniqueness or difference they possessed made them treasures to behold, not enemies to hate. And so instead of normalizing their lower or marginal status, he elevated them, welcomed them in, and made room for them. In my Father's house there is room for all of you, he says, and I am preparing a place just for you. Each individual, exception, value, worthy of a place in the heart and the home of God. If we can get ourselves to that place, it becomes easy to take that last step, which is to actualize that love, to, to heal them, to help them, to feed them, to welcome them, maybe even to sacrifice for them. If you ask me for anything, Jesus says, I will do it for you. And he says that because he loves us. Personalized destigmatize, exceptionalize, and then actualize. These are the steps on the way of love. But the challenge that we face as people who, I think, I like to believe, are seeking to follow the way of love rather than the way of hate, is one of scale. Love, being based in closeness and relationship, does not expand as easily or as quickly as hate, which flourishes in generalizations and distance. This, I imagine, was a lesson that St. Paul learned quickly when he went from living a life of hate and violence to preaching and teaching this gospel of love. He worked himself to the bone, establishing relationships with people throughout the ancient world and then staying in touch with them through his letters. And this took time and effort. And even then, it was touch and go. But what saved his work 
and what can save us as we seek to love deeper and broader and farther than any one person can alone was the formation of these communities that transcended any single individual communities whose sole purpose was to instantiate and inculcate and inspire individuals to continue to love one another rather than hate one another. And those communities became the church. Which means that fundamentally, the job of the church and we as members of it is to speak up and stand up and act up in the name of love. To stop the progression of hate in its tracks with a light so radiant that it changes lives and through those lives, the world. I realize this is my first sermon to you officially as your rector, so let me reiterate this message. And it is the same message I had for you when I first arrived, and which I pray will continue to form the foundation of our ministry together. So hear me well. We as individuals, and we as the church, must be devoted to nothing more than being fully actively, purposefully serving as agents of love in this world. Let there be no doubt as to what we are about here at Christ and St. Luke's. We are about love. We're about getting to know people. Not stigmatizing, but celebrating the gift that they are, and we are going to work as hard as we can to put that love into practice. Because that's what it means to be followers of the way. The way of the one who is the way and the truth and the life. That is the way of Jesus and therefore that will be our way as well. We're going to love people. And we're going to change the world. Amen.